Oh my goodness. Here I am, sitting in the waiting area. And there's like a Picasso drawing on the wall and an overbearing snake plant in the corner. They're both simply just looking at me. I'm scanning the room and avoiding the chaos in my mind. I'm alone and all I can hear is the busy cars on the high street. All I'm waiting for is my therapist to call me and go into room number two and just have an hour for her to file all my thoughts into the big filing cabinet in my mind. Hello and welcome to the Diabetes Squad podcast. I'm Manisha Bhagama. Over the last season, we talked a lot about mental health. Most of our guests mentioned how tricky it is managing type 1 diabetes. So, I thought it would be best to kickstart season two by talking about it. So, welcome to the new season of Diabetes Squad. This is season two, and we are starting with something that many of us may have thought about in the new year, especially whilst all of us are trying to avoid the gym and probably become vegan. Some of us are thinking about probably therapy. So, I'll let my special guest introduce herself. Thank you, Manisha. So, I'm Marisha. I am a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist and EMDR therapist, and I work in the private sector after 10 years in the NHS. Amazing. So for me, the reason why we have got a professional in this field is because I guess I've been exposed to therapy for, well, the last five years, to be fair, but it's always been around in my life, either in the background or in the foreground. But when I was diagnosed in 2007, I put all my efforts, all my passion, all my focus into concentrating of my physical health. Literally, I avoided this massive thing that happened in my life and 16 years down the line I've realized the knock-on effect that it's had on me because every day was physical 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 health and that person inside those thoughts inside were sort of getting tarnished I would say I mean have you seen such things in your field or you know in your practice have you come across people who are diverting their attention yeah, definitely. So it's really normal, especially going through a traumatic time to either sort of suppress those memories, block them out, have really quite sort of gappy memories, uh, if that makes sense. So you kind of remember parts of it. But yeah, we tend to, as all humans, try to push things under the carpet um, and carry on. But like you said, it can really impact you later in life where you're carrying on your daily life and things start to come into things like relationships or kind of career and you start to look back a bit on what you've been through and how you deal with things. And a lot of the time it does come from what we've experienced in the past. Absolutely, I like what you said there about especially career and relationships because we do just in general suppress certain, I would say, traumas mm. or experiences. And then when they come to the surface, it's sort of like you've lost control. And that's definitely how I felt about 10 years ago. Mm. And I just thought to myself, I'm at a crossroads. I feel like something needs to be done. It's like yeah. I needed somebody to file things together. 
So it's sort of compartmentalizing everything where you've almost got a filing cabinet and you then open up that box and you start working through those files. And that's what we, how we actually say in therapy when someone comes in, we're trying to tap into a memory network to work on their past. If it for you was your diagnosis, if it was somebody else, it was a different type of trauma or a difficult relationship that they were in. It is like literally pulling out those files, processing those memories and then trying to think about that situation or that event in a healthier way so that you can cope with things better in the here and now. And there is something that I have touched upon, I know for a fact, especially when I did my first ever episode of Diabetes Squad, which was like the diagnosis. And I heard it back through the editing process that I was doing. And I forgot certain elements. Like I spoke about what I was wearing and my brother gave me his hoodie and I forgot about that. And actually now reflecting back on those moments, I thought him giving me that hoodie was a part of him saying like, I'll look after you if that yeah, makes sense absolutely yeah and I remember sort of just listening back to your diagnosis and what that was like for you but I guess you don't really know what someone's been through unless they talk about it and that's one of the things that we just don't do we don't talk about the past because it is hard we don't want people to know what we've been through it can often feel embarrassing there's a sense of shame the more we talk the more we just normalize these sorts of things and don't feel embarrassed about talking about them Absolutely. And something that I want to touch on there, actually, I mean, I've said it a few times, especially, I guess, in my relationship is I didn't want my diabetes to be a burden on my partner. I didn't want... I want to be in control, whereas being diabetic is, in my brain, something that you cannot manage or be in control all the time because it has its own brain and it does its own thing. And I found that for people that have heard that episode in my immediate family or my extended family, they were so unaware of the whole experience and how it affected me. Even to this day, I don't talk to my parents or my brothers about that time of my life because I don't want to be a burden to them. So what what were the worries and thoughts that went through your head then at the time about maybe telling people about your future? based on your diagnosis what did you worry about you know sometimes we worry about what will people think will I find a partner will people think I've caused this in any way you know is this my fault that this has happened why me what have I done wrong why is it not happening to other people so there are so many thoughts and worries that you'll probably go through at the time of diagnosis which can often for some people take years to adjust to and adapt to and accept I think that acceptance is the biggest part but a lot of those worries will come from the stigma and that fear of what people will think. So I can definitely, yeah, say that people, whether it's been diagnosed with a, a long-term physical health problem or even a diagnosis of mental health problems, you know, anxiety, depression, people still worry. I also think culturally as well, but still worry about what people will think about them. Interesting. And I do think that the stigma around therapy is yeah. I still do feel, in my opinion, there is a stigma attached. Have you found this in your profession, in your career? Yeah, I mean, for me, one of the key things that you'll find is people say, oh, my family don't know that I'm doing this. I wouldn't be able to tell my parents that I'm doing this. They'll just think it's it's crazy that I'm talking to someone about our problems. They'll worry that our problems will get out. That's another big one that will often again with Asian people where they come into therapy and they say oh, my partner or my my kids or my family and my parents they don't know that I'm doing this but then you get the other extreme where the family are pushing them to get help because that person's problems are affecting the wider family unit or it's affecting their life or it's stopping them from doing things so you can really get both extremes where family are pushing them to do something about it but also where people are still struggling to 
open up to their family about having therapy and why they need it. I think it's just this idea of being weak and this kind of idea that there's something wrong with our child. But we're all on a spectrum of anxiety and low mood. It's something which we can't get rid of. There are innate feelings. You know, we need anxiety to survive. Depression is a way of protecting ourselves and withdrawing, again, isolating when we're feeling low so we don't feel other things. So we can't get rid of these emotions. So why do people then want to sort of shy away from talking about it and stop their partner or girlfriend or whoever it is from getting the help that they need? When you said that, it does make me laugh because I literally was on the phone to my mum and she said to me are you still having therapy like there's nothing wrong with you like you're happy now like yeah. why do you still need to have therapy yeah. and it's sort of like I really don't want to get I, don't, I really don't want to unpack this and try to you know convince you that it's yeah. working for me yeah and I don't I just said yep yeah, that's just something that I do and that's yeah. that well, I mean, you're investing in your mental health. So just like people invest in a gym membership, you're just investing in your health in a different way. And actually, I think therapy should really be introduced at a very early age for people to say it's really normal. We might need it. We might have to dip into it at certain times in our life. But actually, it's OK to have it because if you're investing in physical health and put so much importance on that, why don't we do it on our mental health? And there's a huge connection between the two. So if our physical health is down, if we're being diagnosed with something or we're experiencing, I don't know, chronic pain, whatever that might be, you'll naturally find a dip in your mood or heightened mm. levels of anxiety. So the two work so closely together, hand in hand. We've got to work on both and we've got to normalise that as well. I definitely agree with the idea of normalising because I found that after COVID, there was so much advertising and there was mm. so much about mental health awareness, mental health awareness. So I feel like there is a shift in the generation, I would say, yeah. where people are aware of that term and it's not such a taboo. And I guess in my job as well, it's something that we do talk about and have workshops with the children. And so I do think it's gone from like zero to a hundred quite mm. quickly. Mm -hmm. And I guess in your field have you found there's so many more people that are being referred yes definitely we're actually getting more men in which is nice because I felt that maybe 70% of my case said would often be women and the men that might be coming in were maybe people who had faced some sort of trauma but actually even men now are coming in and saying actually I do struggle with sort of stress work-related stress or a difficulty in my relationship or I have got a physical health problem that I'm really struggling with and it's affecting my mood so it's just nice to see that people are saying I want the help and I want the support and I think that's the hardest part is accepting that I have a problem or I'm struggling with something and I need to get out and do something about it often people do it with the support of people around them often clients will come in and they're just saying I've got to just try and do this on my own because I know I can't talk to people around me but yeah it's just nice to know that people are accessing the support and there is so much support out there that you can get and just sort of taking a stance from there when if and when people are feeling that they are at you know I phrased it as a crossroads for me mm. I was mm. most certainly how would I phrase it I was unhappy in too many aspects of my life. I guess five years ago, I was unhappy in my marriage. I was unhappy at my lack of career progression. I was unhappy with the expectations that were put on me by my 
in-laws, there was just a lot I was unhappy with physically, mentally, and then having diabetes on top, I was just like, no, everything's just getting too much. And at that time, I spoke to, well, I didn't speak to somebody, to be fair, I didn't. That's when Lottie recognised that something's not right. Yeah. And she, you know, sort of almost, you know, pushed me into seeking a therapist. And obviously it worked out well. And that's the gratitude I have for somebody that does love me enough to recognise that something's wrong. Yeah. But many people don't have that for various reasons. So how would one seek the help or start the process? So I would normally say if you can speak to your GP, it's the first place to go. So maybe just booking an an appointment with them just to say, like, I'm struggling with whether it's low mood, anxiety. Sometimes we don't know what we are struggling with, but we just know we're struggling. And I think that's the first place to go is if you can go to your GP. They may then think about your options with you. You know, you might be asked to fill in some forms, just rating sort of your mood, anxiety. Then they might suggest either self-referring to a local NHS IAPT service, so that's Improving Access to Psychological Therapy service, where they'll do initial assessment, usually over the phone, and then they'll be able to look at your treatment options with you. Some people go down the route of taking medication. You know, if they're struggling with things like panic attacks, you might be offered things like beta blockers or anti-anxiety medication. I guess they all work, but it's choosing what's right for you and never feeling pressurised to, to kind of have to do one or the other. Always do your research, make an informed decision. Obviously, that's more NHS care and they offer great support. So they offer things over the phone if you feel it's hard to go in. Um, you can do things by video call. There are group sessions that they offer, which can be really nice as well, just being able to talk to other people and almost feel like, OK, it's not just me. And they also offer face-to-face sessions as well. And what's nice is that you've just got people who really want to help you to get better. You're both there for the same reason, which is you want to get better. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. for me, it was literally, this sounds terrible, but it was a Google search. But yes. I also feel that, you know, if you are in the process and you do have a session with a therapist, then if you feel it's not the right fit, then it's okay to say, you know, and most therapists do say we'll do like, you know, half a session or like yeah. a free 20 minute, 15 minute session. Yeah. And, you know, if you're not feeling it, then, you know, it's not like you have to settle because you've told this person everything. No. So my advice in finding a therapist is most part of the therapy and what what helps the therapy work well is the therapeutic relationship. At least 50% of what helps it work is the therapeutic relationship. So you want to make sure that A, you're both on the right page. B, they understand you and where you're coming from and what your goals are. And then C, be able to kind of set up a good therapy plan. Sometimes we go in and just think, okay, I'll just blurt it all out. And that therapist should be able to contain what you said and be able to say, right, what do we want to do about this? I come from obviously a CBT background so I'm very kind of you know solutions focused how do we get this person feeling better and changing their patterns of thinking and behaviors but there are different types of therapy you know some people might just want to talk about what's happened and have more of a counseling session which is also really helpful it helps you to kind of process your memories and process how you feel about certain things so therapy can go from short term to to long term depending on what your needs are and just how slowly you want to process things some people say I financially can't do this for years and I want to just knuckle down and and work on what's going on right now and you could do that a really good piece of work in sort of 10 to 12 sessions but do really life-changing stuff so there's never a pressure to have to have long-term therapy Mm. you can do some good work in, in a short period of time as well 
Yeah. And also, I think that everyone's different. And also in terms of age as well. So if we have sort of younger listeners who listen as well, there are various portals and in-school programs and various other ways in which the safeguarding team at multiple educational systems can help young people. And especially with Diabetes Squad in the in-school program that I deliver, it is a safe grace for children to talk and Mm. explain and, you know, get their frustrations out. But also in terms of a group session for you know seeing and hearing some of the similarities between each other because obviously I can only reflect on type 1 diabetes you know walking around school or society with you know patches you know attached to you quite literally does say that something's up and sometimes you don't want to talk about it sometimes you just want to shy away but actually if you are surrounded by other people that are saying what you feel it is extremely nurturing and comforting and just you feel normal that's it it's normality isn't it whatever normality means in this world yeah and it's just not being judged so just being accepted being yeah like you said being normal whatever that is it's just not being judged to be different and that actually we're all the same we all have things somebody might have diabetes but the other person might have an issue with I don't know their skin or another physical health problem that we might not see but it might be internal so we will never know you know life it can change things can happen at any point it's unpredictable but if we come from a place where we're more accepting kinder more compassionate towards people the person who's going through something feels more able to talk about it so I just think if we can create a kinder compassionate world it'd be a nicer place for people that might be struggling with things to be able to open up so in your professional opinion, when somebody's diagnosed with, in my case, type 1 diabetes, what are some of the coping strategies or behavioural coping strategies that you would advise? Okay, so I'd definitely say think about your support system. It doesn't have to be family. Sometimes if we're not in a place where we can talk to family, think about in your network who you have. If we've been diagnosed at a young age, it might be one or two friends at school. It could even be a teacher. You know, you're really close with a particular aunt or uncle that you just feel comfortable sharing those things with and wouldn't feel judged. Think about who you who would be able to talk to. What I would say is think about getting support whilst you're going through that process possibly in a professional capacity so are there any therapists who would be able to support you is that through the NHS is that through local charities because there are there are lots of sort of charities and things like that that you can access for young people as well so 18 to 25 is classed as a young person there's actually low cost and free counselling in most boroughs available for them if you're a little bit older and again have been diagnosed and you want some support with that maybe just think about going through the therapy side of things but sometimes you'll go to your specialist for diabetes there might be you know phone lines that you can call there might be forums there might be local groups meetups even in the clinics that you have to go into there'll probably be some kind of support that you can get from them that's what I would recommend it might also help to think about not just the diagnosis but actually this is one part of my life and if we let go of all the other areas if we let it start affecting things like our relationships our hobbies our interests our work career friendships all those things everything's going to feel like it's crumbling and so it's almost like you've got a bucket and in that bucket there's so many different compartments if you keep adding to that bucket what's going to happen it's going to overfill it's going to overfill so what i would suggest is how do we poke holes in that bucket and have it almost stress relief or ways to cope better and what are your coping mechanisms so for you it's you know being creative keep up with that if it's for you playing music or sports try and keep up with 
those things as much as you can because it's going to level out your mental health your emotional well-being so that you can cope with that diagnosis a bit better Mm. and I guess also like coming to terms with you know it so to speak or the acceptance that this is me and this is who I am I've I guess in the last year or less than a year since I've been doing diabetes squad that's me now at a really healthy relationship with it yeah how do people struggle with acceptance yeah Yeah. um a lot of it is around the belief that that thing in their life is going to have an impact on them so it might be especially at a young age will this affect me being able to find a partner will this affect my work my career will it affect me be able to do things that i enjoy so it's usually those fears that stop you from accepting something whereas if we almost say I've got you, you're here for life, we're stuck together. There's no kind of, yeah, chopping you off and pushing you away. How do I live a life with you, but still achieve some of those goals that I want to do? So we might be just adapting some of our goals. We're not getting rid of them, not changing them completely. We just adapt them slightly so that I can do them whilst I fit this other thing in my life with me. So you don't feel overwhelmed by it almost. You're still in control of your life. And I think Mm. often when you're diagnosed with something, you feel a bit out of control and you feel like this Mm. thing is going to control me for the rest of my life. I found myself this week saying to one of the students who's type one at school, uh, who's, you know, got some highs and lows at the moment, feeling like, you know, a year 11 student who's struggling a little bit to manage, well, just being a GCSE student, Mm. let alone everything else. I said, you need to find a way of being friends with your type one diabetes. I'm not saying you need to be best friends. Yeah, absolutely not. But get to the friendship level with it Mm -hmm. and realize that it's going to be a friend for life. And that's the way that we have to start a friendship, just being, you know, hi, how's it going? Be acquaintances. And then after you are able to find a happy medium. And that I feel like that's something with many people who are going through many unseen illnesses, diagnoses. I do feel it is something where you just have to find a way of realizing that this is a part of me and you'll always be there and we'll have our ups and downs, but you are a friend. Anything else that you wanted to add or anything that you wanted to advise our listeners for Diabetes Squad? I would say if you can change your thinking about things, whether it's a diagnosis, whether it, whatever it might be, if we can start to change our thinking about things and be able to rationalise our thoughts, have more balanced, healthy thinking about things, it will change how we feel. Which is why if you're struggling to cope with something, it's probably how you're interpreting it. So sometimes getting that support and reaching out and being able to have a healthy non-judgmental sounding board can really allow you to maybe just approach things and have a different perspective on whatever it is that's going on in your life and it will really just ease off those difficult distressing emotions that you might be going through so for me I think everyone should have a course of therapy at least in their life just to be able to know who they are why they do the things they do why they kind of think the way they do behave the way they do based on their life and their past experiences but also how to develop healthier coping strategies absolutely fantastic amazing thank you so much for taking the time out to be a part of diabetes squad podcast super appreciate it and i'm sure i'll put lots and lots of information yes inside the episode blurb so people can get a little bit more info Wow, that was so cathartic. Talking to a therapist, obviously who's not my therapist, but about how managing the type 1 can be a strain. 
But being kinder to yourself, as mentioned a few times, is something that I constantly have to tell myself as well. There's days when my sugars are flying high and despite the fact that I'm correcting it, it just doesn't want to come down. Or if I'm having a night hypo and I'm literally having Haribo's, brunch bars, apple juice, and they're not coming up. But I need to also learn to be kinder to myself. And there's nothing really called a bad diabetic or a good diabetic. I hate those terms. In fact, once I met a doctor at a wedding and she said to me, are you a good diabetic or a bad diabetic? I genuinely was insulted by that comment because not a lot of people realize the mental strain and the stress that we have to go through. I hope that this episode, you've found some inner peace, but also it may encourage you to speak to somebody about dealing with type 1 diabetes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really appreciate it. If you want to get in touch and talk to me about your experiences, send me a DM on Instagram. I'm at Diabetes Squad. And remember to use the hashtag Diabetes Squad. The podcast is written and presented by me, Manisha Vidgama. The producer is Matt Wareham, and it's a depictor production for Diabetes Squad. <laughs> <laughs>